And I want to encourage you to open up that Bible to Matthew 26. You'll find Matthew chapter 26 on page 984 in your pew Bible. Uh, And while you're turning there, I want to express my gratitude. Um, Thank you so much for the way you have loved us and encouraged uh, my family and I. Over this past month, it's, it's been a wonderful transition, and now we feel like crafty veterans in New England. And so uh, you have been warm and wonderful. You've been the body of Christ to us. Thank you so much for your every kindness. If you're new here, maybe this is your first Sunday. Hey, I'm new here too. My name's Cody. I'm the new pastor, and uh, glad to be on this journey with you. We're going to start a new series today in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll start in chapter 26. And And what we're doing is we are setting our eyes on Easter Sunday even now. Uh, Today and for the following nine Sundays, we're going to be at the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, And and we start in chapter 26 because there's a pivot point in the story right here where Jesus sets his eyes on the cross and all the action goes to that place. And so you and I together, we're going to walk with Jesus through this grand story. We'll be with him in the garden as he prays and as he's betrayed there and arrested there. And we'll join Jesus in the mock trials before all the authorities. And, and we'll witness his beating and his mutilation. And we'll be there and watch him die on the cross. And you and I are going to see the empty tomb. I don't want to give the story away because it's so good. But the tomb's empty. The tomb is empty, and we're going to see that on Easter Sunday. And in the day after Easter Sunday, we're going to meet with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee, and he's going to give you some work to do. I want you to be with us every Sunday that you can uh, throughout this series. Uh, And so Matthew 26 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I want to start off this morning with a quiz. You didn't know that, but uh, here you go. You got a one-question quiz, and don't answer out loud. I want to show you this object, and I want to add, don't answer out loud. Someone might copy off of your answer, but who is this? And in your head, you're saying, it looks like Jesus, but there's got to be a trick question. Well, there's no trick question. This is indeed a toy maker's depiction of Jesus. And uh, this toy showed up in my office a number of years ago, and I've I've kept it. Um, It has a button on the back, and if you push it, uh, Jesus speaks Bible verses, and that's a very nice thing. But there's a few things about this Jesus doll that I find a little disconcerting. Uh, One is uh, this Jesus is very Caucasian, like SPF 200 Caucasian. (laughs) Another thing that's troublesome is his long flowing feathered hair, neatly manicured. Uh, Another thing that's troublesome, you can't see it from where you are, but if you want to come play with this after service, you're welcome to. This Jesus has blue eyes, piercing blue eyes. And I'm not trying to be racially insensitive, uh, I just find it unlikely that this Middle Eastern first century Jewish man living in Palestine was this white and this blue-eyed. It's possible. It's possible. I think unlikely. Uh, Perhaps most troubling, though, this Jesus is ripped. He has massive muscles. He can bench press 350 He may have skipped leg day a couple of times, but he never missed a bench press. So I, 
So yes, it's Jesus. I don't know what Jesus this is or what version. If this is like California Muscle Beach Jesus, Millennium Bro Jesus, Kosher Protein Shake Jesus. I, I don't know what Jesus this is, but it's I'm quite confident this is, this is not the biblical Jesus. Uh, so these things are, are troublesome. Uh, perhaps most troublesome, though, is the fact that you and I, we had no problem recognizing this as Jesus. You see, when, when we make Jesus in our own image, the results are always profane. And yet we do it all the time. People in the church and people outside the church, we have conclusions, assumptions about who Jesus is, what he must like, what he must approve of, what he must think of me, what he must think of them. And all the time we make Jesus in our own image. And when we do so, we settle for a Jesus of a much lesser quality than the Jesus of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 26, our journey to Easter Sunday begins with a scene where nearly everyone gets Jesus wrong. Nearly everyone gets Jesus wrong. The players in this story, they they have their own assumptions, their own conclusions, their own interests. And they just assume that they've got it right and Jesus has it wrong. So we're going to find good company this morning in this passage. This is going to be like looking in a mirror for you and I because we're just like the players in the story. So my goal today, if we study this passage right, is that you and I will be humbled at the way we get Jesus wrong. But... We wouldn't stop there. Know that we would be overjoyed at the portrait of Jesus for how good he is, better than you and I could have ever invented. He's absolutely remarkable. So to accomplish this, uh, what I want to show you in this passage today are three ways Jesus defies our expectations. Three ways he's better than you ever dreamed, ever imagined. Not a Jesus in our own image, but a Jesus who is God with us. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to start in verse 1. Here's what Matthew tells us. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, 
the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. When we begin reading this narrative, Matthew just pops in and out of all of these different scenes. He starts by telling us after Jesus had finished saying all these things. So you could point to a very near context, the just immediate chapters where Jesus is, has been uh, sharing these powerful, deep teachings after saying all these things. You could look at a broader context. Here, here we are at the conclusion of his earthly ministry. Everything has been said that needs to be said, and now it's time for the primary course of action, namely his death and resurrection. Matthew takes us from scene to scene. Jesus speaks to the disciples. And then all of a sudden, we're in the palace of the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. And here's this meeting of these religious leaders. And then we, we hop over to a little suburb called Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. And we're in the house of this man known as Simon the leper with Jesus and the disciples and this unnamed woman. And then at the end of that scene, we then flash to this place where Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, goes and meets with those same religious leaders we just saw earlier in the passage. I think there's an interconnectedness in all of these scenes. And there's one scene and one example in the scene that stands out as the example for you and I to follow. Let me show you these three ways in which Jesus defies our expectations. He's better than you ever imagined. If you're taking notes, first of all, his agenda is better than ours. His agenda is better than ours. This is played out in the text in verses 1 through 8 and then verses 14 through 16. Uh, we're first met with Jesus' agenda in verse 2. He speaks it clearly, very directly to his disciples. Look at it with me. He says, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. There's a few key terms that you and I need to be aware of in that verse that really ought to just jump off the page to us. First of all, he gives a time setting. He says, as you know, it's just a couple of days to the Passover. Passover is one of the most significant Jewish celebrations, especially in first century uh, Jerusalem. It's a pilgrimage holiday. And so everyone would make the trek back to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday there. Kind of like everyone in the summer goes to the Cape, right? Everyone at Passover goes to Jerusalem. And Passover is a significant holiday because it marks this moment in which God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. He sent word to them. He said, tonight my messenger is going to come through an exact judgment on everyone. But every house that has the blood of a lamb spread across its doorpost will be passed over. And so all of God's people who got that word, they, they covered their doorposts with the blood of a lamb and the angel of the Lord moved through the area, exacted his judgment, but passed over all of God's people. And this was the pivotal moment in which God's people were set free from Egypt. So Jesus gives this important time stamp. And it's not just because the disciples are, are, are clueless or this is a, a detail that the reader needs to know. Jesus is connecting the holiday to what's about to happen. Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man 
will be handed over to be crucified. That phrase, son of man, is not one you and I use a lot about Jesus in church life. And it wasn't a term that was used of Jesus a lot by the New Testament writers, but it's a term that Jesus used of himself. He took it from the book of Daniel. It's, it's, a, a, it's a messianic term. It is a term of divinity. The one who is called the son of man is not like you and I. He's very different. Uh, it's a divine title. So when Jesus says the Passover's coming, a lamb's going to be slain. And guess what? The Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's linking the two together. His blood is going to be the blood that sets people free once and for all. That's his agenda. Jesus' agenda is to come and to die. And having died to rescue people from their sin and having rescued us from our sin, than to call us to take up our crosses and follow him as well. His agenda, plain and simple, uh, is, is to die for the lost and from the lost make people who carry their crosses in obedience and following him. That's Jesus' big agenda. But there's other agendas present in the story, three others, in fact, that I want to highlight for you. The first one is from the disciples. They're in this opening scene with Jesus. Jesus tells them the Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's so direct. And how do the disciples respond? With crickets. There's no recorded response. And, and this is pretty par for the course. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, this is not the first time Jesus has talked about his impending death. This is the fourth time. And at no point in which Jesus talks about his coming crucifixion, the disciples say, yes, Lord, we understand, we get it, thank you for this. The only thing they ever say in response is defiance, right? You remember Peter says, no, I'll never let this happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So they're never on board with Jesus. The disciples always have their own agendas that they think Jesus is bending to. That's abundantly clear in our story in the scene in the house in Bethany, and we'll talk about it more in just a moment. But when the, the woman pours the oil on Jesus as an act of worship, the disciples, how do they view it? They're indignant. Why this waste? Why would you pour all of that on Jesus? We could have sold this and given the proceeds to the poor. Hey, we're poor. So why, you, something better could have been done with that. These guys are not on the same page with Jesus. They're close to him, present with him, under his teaching, see the miracles, and they're doing things their own way, not in line with what Jesus desires. There's another agenda on display in this story, and that's the agenda of the religious leaders in verses 3 through 5. We're told that the chief priests, the elders of the people, they assembled in the palace of the high priest. Verse 4, they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way. And why in a sly way? Here's why. You'll remember, Passover is a pilgrimage holiday. Jesus is from a little town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee, or think of it like the county of Galilee, if that helps you a bit more. And so all of these Galileans have come to Jerusalem for the holiday. If these leaders go out and arrest Jesus, who is wildly popular and very well known among Galilean pilgrims, there's going to be a fight. And so in order to keep their peace and in order to maintain their power, they want to arrest Jesus in a sly way, away from the crowds, away from attention. They just want to take care of him quietly and be done with it. Their agenda is their own power. 
It doesn't matter what's right. It doesn't matter what God is doing through this one. What matters is that they maintain their power over the situation. There's another erroneous agenda on display in the story. In verse 14, that's Judas Iscariot. Matthew tells us he's one of the 12. He went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out 30 silver coins, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Why did Judas do this? Popular question here. What's his motivation? And, and you'll find as many answers as books you read on this passage. And, and to be honest, we really don't know. None of the gospel writers give us explicitly Judas's motivation in betraying Jesus. The only And the clearest motivation is just simply cash. Maybe he saw the end was coming. Maybe he knew Jesus' time was limited. And he spent the last three years not working but following the rabbi. And so he thinks, hey, before this is over, I'm going to cash in a bit. Judas' agenda is to get paid. The religious leaders, their agenda is maintaining their own power. The disciples, their agenda is not Jesus' agenda. It's what they want to do. And what we see in these flawed people is what you and I may just see in ourselves. We're just like these people. We want Jesus to bend to our will. We want Jesus to come our way. We, we want to set the course for our lives and then slap a Jesus label on it and assume that he will bless it and guide us in what we have endeavored to do. Surrender is in short supply even in the church. About 50 years ago, a pastor uh, named Wilbur Reese wrote a little poem called Three Dollars Worth of God, and it sums up the attitude of so many when it comes to following Jesus. He says this, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a foreigner or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I especially like the line, I I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth, because it, it seems to describe exactly how so many people think about their worship and their following of Jesus. We don't want anything that demands us to pick up a cross or make major sacrifices to follow Jesus. Rather, we want something that makes us comfortable with who we are and already with how we are. We want acceptance, not repentance. We want to remain as we come. We don't want to become who Christ wants us to be. We settle for such puny, man-made agendas. But what Christ has in store for you is infinitely better, more glorious than you ever could have imagined. It's worth laying down your schemes and your plans, saying, Christ, be my everything. I'm yours. I'm following you. And if it takes me to the cross, I'm going all the way, Jesus, 
all the way with you. Jesus' agenda is far better than ours. Let me show you another place in the story where his expectations, or he defies our expectations. Second, if you're taking notes, Jesus is worth more than you realize. He's worth more than you realize. His agenda is better than ours, and he is worth more than you realize. Verses 6 through 12 is where this plays out in the text. The pivotal scene in our passage takes place in a small rural suburb of Jerusalem, a little town called Bethany, and we've seen Jesus in Bethany before. Some of his closest friends live in this little town, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. That's the sibling group that Jesus is tightly connected with. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is in the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is. There's a lot of guesswork. Uh, It could be that he's a relative of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Maybe Simon is their dad, or it could be Simon is another sibling. It, It could be that Simon the leper is no longer living. This was his house, and now it belongs to someone else, and Jesus and the disciples are there with other people. But here's my guess. If, if Simon the leper is living and present at the time of this episode, Matthew has recorded his name incorrectly. It's not Simon the leper. It's Simon the former leper as he sits in the presence of Jesus. They're sitting there in this house, and all of a sudden here comes this unnamed woman, someone who's apparently in the group, with the group, and she pours out, all of this aromatic oil on Jesus' head. This was an unusual scene. Now, uh, it's especially unusual for us in our culture because you and I don't, uh, we don't greet our guests with bowls of oil when they come to our houses. If, if you eat somewhere tonight with friends, you show up at their house and they have a bowl of oil, here's what you will not do. You will not pull, pull your little black comb out of your back pocket, dip it in the oil, and then give yourself the Alfonsorelli, and then go on with dinner. You would find this practice tremendously weird. Uh, but in Jesus' day, this was not a weird practice. Oil was used for all kinds of purposes, royal purposes, religious purposes, hygiene purposes. So it wasn't uncommon that when you had guests in your house, you would provide a little oil for them to spruce up with comb it through their hair, do whatever they would do, and uh, it gives a sense of freshness. And this is an aromatic oil at that, so it puts off this perfume and that would be pleasing. Uh, it's just what good hosts did for their guests. Uh, but what this woman did on this day was unusual. It was unusual because of the excess. She brings in this extremely pricey oil, And it's kept in a jar that matches the value of the contents, not just in some old mason jar. She's got this alabaster jar, and she comes and pours all of this oil on Jesus' head. To provide a small amount of oil would have been extremely kind and proper, but to pour the entire contents on Jesus' head was a stunning display of excess. And verse 8 tells us that the disciples were indignant. Why this waste? This is improper. Sell it. Give the proceeds to the poor. But their response is a self-righteous response. And in their self-righteousness, they display an alarmingly low value for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't leave them in their ignorance for very long. He interprets the scene for them because they're not getting it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Middle of verse 10, he says, Why are you bothering this woman? 
She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And when Jesus says you'll have the poor with you always, does that mean he is discrediting social ministries or ministries to the poor? Absolutely not. Just go back to chapter 25 and you will see the stern and terrifying words Jesus says about the church's obligation to care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, and the imprisoned among us. We have a divine mandate. But the issue in the house on this day is not the care for the poor, it's the worship of the Messiah. Jesus says this woman has done this thing to prepare him for burial. So a popular question for us to ask in this scene is, did she know that? Did this woman know what she was doing when she came and poured the oil on Jesus? And again, you will find as many answers as resources you read on this passage. But here's my best guess. Feel free to chunk it out the window if you want. I think we can take a balanced view here. I think the woman in this scene understands better the imminent threat against Jesus than the disciples do. Although Jesus has spoken it clearly to them, I think she sees the scene better. She knows he's about to be killed. She may not understand how. She may not know exactly when, but the time is pressing. Now, that being said, I think it's also fair to say she doesn't understand the full ramifications of his coming death. No one does. But she gets something right. She gets right that this one is going to die and he is worth every drop of this precious oil and so much more. We'll prepare him now for burial in this extravagant act of worship. What's most important is not this woman's intentions ultimately, but it's, it's resting in Jesus' interpretation. And he takes her extravagant act as an act of worship that is proper for the one who's about to lay down his life for sinners. She embraces and exalts the soon-to-be crucified Savior. This is another place where Jesus defies our expectations. So many of us see Jesus merely as a preserver of the things we value. He is our treasure keeper, not the treasure. Jesus, bless my thing. Keep my thing. Maintain my thing. Give me the thing I don't yet have. How seldom do we come to Jesus and say, you are everything worth everything I have. Jesus, it's all yours. Paul understood this when he said in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, he says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost how many things? Some things? No. A few things? No. The things I'm glad to get rid of? No. For whose sake I have lost all things? And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Christ is worth far more than you ever imagined. Worth everything you have. The full surrender of everything that belongs to you, your very life. This woman sets the example for us. She gives everything to Jesus, even her name. 
Now, here's where you would say, "Eh, hold up, new guy. In John chapter 12, John names her, and her name is that, 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 that. Don't do it. Do not rob her of her anonymity in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says this act is going to be told as a, a memorial for her. Who's the her? If all we've got is Matthew's gospel, we don't know. I think there's a point there. She gives her oil. She gives her name. Her very identity is wrapped up in Christ. That's why she's to be praised. That's why she sets the example for you and I. Christ is to be everything, and he is worth everything to us. What treasure do you hold closest to yourself? What's your most valuable thing? It might be brick and mortar. It might be precious rock. It might be flesh and blood. But you can't worship Christ and hold on to your idols at the same time. People and stuff make for lousy gods. But I promise you this, you will not ever be disappointed when Jesus is your everything. When you, as a husband, say this, I'm going to set Christ before me, and I'm all in with Jesus, not just to pacify my wife, the churchgoer, but I'm all in, and I'm going to love him supremely. I promise you this, my man, you will be the best husband you could ever be when Christ is your prize. And you, lady, when when you say Christ is my everything above all else, you will love your man better than you ever imagined. You will be the best mother you could ever possibly be when Christ is your greatest treasure. And you'll be the best grandparent, and you will love your grandkids the best, and you'll be the best retiree, and the best banker, and the best attorney, and the best teacher, and the best whatever it is you do. When Christ is your greatest treasure, no one will get to the end of their life and say, I wish I had spent more time with my stuff. We will get there and say, I'm glad I gave it all for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of everything. Whether you have a bank account with much or a bank account with dust, he is your greatest treasure and will take you all the way. I promise you he will. You can say amen if you want because Jesus is worthy of everything in your life more valuable than you ever, ever imagined. So Jesus, his agenda is better than ours. Jesus is worth more than you realize. The final way Jesus defies our expectations, the gospel is greater news than you ever dreamed. The gospel is greater news than you dreamed. Verse 13 alone highlights this for us. We're still in this scene where Jesus is interpreting this woman's act. So imagine you're there in the house with the disciples. The woman pours the oil on Jesus, and then Jesus interprets it this way. He says, hey, she's just turned this place into a makeshift morgue. You would be a little alarmed at that. But that's not where the alarming speech from Jesus ends. He then goes on and he says, verse 13, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, What she's done will also be told in memory of her. The disciples fear the death of Jesus is going to be the end of things, but Jesus sees it otherwise. Here's how he interprets his coming death. He says, first, it's going to be gospel. It's going to be good news. 
This is, this is part of the divine plan for lost people. The death of Christ is going to be good news. It's not the end. It's not defeat. His death is victory for sinners, and it's the only way victory can be won. And we know the rest of the story. We know his death is not defeat because three days later he rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ is not mythology. It's not make-believe. It's not our attempt to maintain power in some way. It is the very linchpin on which all of our faith rests. Without that resurrection, he is just a man who was killed for insurrection. But with the resurrection, he is very God. Jesus says, my death is good news. It's gospel. Second thing he says, this, this gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole world. And the disciples say, Jesus, give us an idea of what you mean by the whole world. And he goes, well, Hingham, Massachusetts, for example. And they say, we don't know what those words mean. Jesus says, this is good news. It's going to be preached throughout the whole world. He sees beyond the cross to this very day when this story and this king would be displayed before you from his word. This is good news that's displayed throughout the whole world in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, New England, and beyond. Jesus sees this day and the Matthew 26 day. And here's the good news that comes with the telling of his death and resurrection. The good news is this, that when Jesus died, he died in your place for your sin. Your sin has separated you from God. You don't start with a clean slate. You start with a negative slate. You are by nature an object of wrath. Sinners, not just because of what we do, but by the very fact that we have breath in our lungs and a beating heart, we have inherited Adam's sin deep in our DNA. And every one of us have failed. Every one of us rebels against a God who is not just holy and not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. We are sinners, sinners, sinners. And there's not a thing you can do to fix that on your own. And so the Son of Man, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to us. And he laid down his life as your substitute. The death that your sin requires and deserves. Jesus said, I'll I'll take that. And he alone can take it because he is the God-man. 100% God, 100% human. He's the only one that can take our death. And the good news is this. Although we are tiny and finite and our sin is profound, he has promised that if you will turn to him in faith, he will forgive you and save you and give you eternal life. That's good news. But the good news does not stop there. Because one day this sky is going to split open and he's going to return for his bride, the church. And he will consummate his kingdom once and for all. And when he does, do you know what will not be present? There will be no more sickness. No more cancer cells. No more failing memories. No more broken tendons and bones and muscles. No more deteriorating bodies. All of that gone. There will be no more funerals. No more reasons to wear black suits No more weeping, no more crying. You know what else is gone? No more dictators, no more war. All of it done away with when Christ's peace reigns supreme. Do you know what will be there? There's going to be a song. 
The Apostle John gives us the words to that song in Revelation chapter 5. He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's your song. The gospel is greater news than you have ever dreamed. Because God sets everything right through Jesus Christ. Our story is not defined by death, by loss, by a funeral. It is defined by an irrefutable, enduring hope in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what Matthew gives us in this opening scene in chapter 26. He told us this this morning, that Jesus defies our expectations and that his agenda is better than ours. You're not going to outplan Jesus, the sovereign God of all creation. He's worth more, far more valuable than you ever dreamed. And the gospel, the story of his death and resurrection and hope for those who put their faith in him, that's the greatest story ever told. So it's soul check time, especially if you are already a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not a message about people on the outside looking in. This this is a story about us. If the disciples can get this wrong, so can we, and we do. And so humbly, we've got to evaluate our thoughts towards Jesus. If Jesus takes on our ethnicity, our nationality, if Jesus is for our politicians and not their politicians, if Jesus likes everything you like and hates everyone you hate, it is very likely that you are following a Jesus made in your own image. And so, brother and sister Christian, do not think you are immune from this mistake. It's time for us to check our souls and to turn towards Christ in glad repentance. We all need this turning to Christ as he is, not as we have envisioned him to be. And what if you're not a follower of Jesus? Does this story have anything to say to you? Yeah, a lot. I don't know why. I I, I don't know the stories that bring you to the place today where you're decidedly not a follower of Jesus. And I'm confident those stories have important context and great weight. But it's possible that you have said no to a Jesus of your own making and not Jesus as he is. Several weeks ago, a big moving truck pulled up right here in the church parking lot with all of our stuff. We don't live in the church. We live in a house by the church. And uh, we started to unload things into the house. And I got to talking to Jeremy, the truck driver. And he said, what brings you to New England? I said, I got a new job. And he said, where do you work? I said, right there. And then uh, things almost always get weird when it's revealed that I'm a pastor. 
but in this instance, they got, they got nice. And uh, on into the day, he said, hey, I want to I get your thought on something. He said, I grew up in the church. I've made a lot of mistakes, spent time in prison, struggled with addiction, had all these problems. But today, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to walk with Jesus. And, but my wife, we've been married a year and a half. She's, she rides with me in the truck. Uh, she is opposed to God. In, in her life, uh, she suffered all kinds of abuse as a little girl and then more violence as an older girl. And she struggles with this whole host of, of issues. And so for her, I mean, anytime things don't go our way, she's quick to remind me, well, where's your God now? Like we were supposed to get this apartment and it just fell through. And, and she said, how can you say there's a God that's taking care of us when we can't even get an apartment? Now, in these types of conversations, I, I'm, normally, I'm normally not an all-star. But in this instance, I, I felt like God gave me a word that was good for Jeremy and his wife, and that was right for us as a church. I said to Jeremy, I said, here's the problem for your wife. Among other things we talked about, I said, here's the problem. She has not rejected the God of the Bible. She's rejected a God of her own making with Christian labels on it. The God that she's rejecting is a God who dangles these nice things in front of his people and then he just takes them away arbitrarily, who leaves his people to suffer in the wounds from the past. Not a God who's near and gracious and loving and kind and forgiving. I I wouldn't want to follow her God either. If that's who I thought God was, I'd be an atheist through and through. I said, man, through you, your praying and your love and your encouragement, she can see who Jesus really is and be given a chance to say yes to him probably for the very first time in her life. And it's possible that you're not a follower of Jesus this morning because you have crafted a Jesus of your own making. You've never met the Son of Man, God the Son, who laid down his life for you who has given everything for you and loves you so very much. And so I want to urge you this morning, whether you are in the church or not, a follower of Jesus or not, don't settle for a counterfeit. Don't hold the counterfeit close and say, I love Jesus. Don't reject the counterfeit and say, I hate Jesus. But rather, let's be done with that. Say yes to Jesus, and I promise you this, you'll find he's already said yes to you. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for your word to us that brings us to a place of correction. Because it's true for me, it's true for all of us. We, we go through seasons where we bend you to our image and we forget surrender. So Lord, I ask this morning that God, Holy Spirit, you would press with conviction on the areas in the lives of my brothers and sisters where we follow a God of our own making, where we rest in self-righteousness. We don't surrender to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, thank you for the good news that though we are sinners, forgiveness is abundant and free through faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray also this morning for any of our friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They haven't said yes to you. God, that you would bring them to that place and that soon. Thank you for having them here today. Thank you for the journey they've been on. God, I pray that you would give them the courage, the boldness to know you for who you are, not for their impressions of who you are. I know they will find you a God of love and mercy and compassion, a God who rescues us from every sin and every ounce of wrath we deserve. So, Father, this morning, be glorified as we show that you have all surpassing value as we surrender to you, say yes to you from this word, and, Lord, give you everything that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.